Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another meeting of the Estamine, the Canberra Great War Study Group, uh, the Canberra branch of the Western Front Association. Who's here for the first time? Oh, good o. Very welcome. Um, this is a, a, another one of our anniversary talks, and uh, Roger Lee, the, uh, Dr. Roger Lee, now of the Australian War Memorial, formerly of the Army History Unit, will give us an expert talk on the Battle of Menin Road. Can I ask, is there anyone in the audience who has a personal connection or a family connection to Menin Road? Okay. Gee, I thought there'd be just one, but there's half a dozen. Good. Well, you're particularly welcome. Uh, just to explain to those who haven't been here before, the, the Estamine is a group of... Uh, well, it used to be a small group of uh, First World War enthusiasts who used to meet in a very small room at the National Museum. We used to meet at the uh, various clubs around town, you know, the Austrian Club or the Services Club at Monica. But after the Services Club at Monica burned down, I think we got a bit of a reputation. But the National Library has faith in us, and we haven't burned it down yet. And for the last couple of years, three years, we've had a very close relationship with the National Library, which um, has allowed us to hold originally four talks a year. This year we're holding six on the theme of On War, and this year all of the war talks that we've given relate to the year 1917. Um, and the next... I don't know what that is, but anyway. The, uh, the next talk, just to advertise the next talk, it'll be on the 31st of October, and of course it will be about the Battle of Beersheba, and Jenny Horsfield will be talking about Australians in the Middle East. Um, those of you who've come in late, don't get a lucky door prize, because I'm here and not there. So those of you who have got a lucky door prize uh, ticket, I'll put them in this, this bag and we'll draw them at the end. And there are a number of good prizes, but I won't bore you by telling you what they are now, uh, but it will be worth sticking around. Uh, actually, it'll be well worth sticking around because of Roger Lee. Uh, notices. I've got one notice. Has anybody published a book, uh, you know, been on a trip, uh, advertising a guide, a guided trip they're doing? Anything got anyone to announce? Anyone? Oh, okay. Well, the thing I'd like to announce is that just before I came... I got a message from Andrew Richardson, who's in the Army History Unit, and he said the Army History Unit has finally got a new boss, a new head. Uh, for those who don't know, Roger Lee, who will be addressing us tonight, uh, was the former Australian Army History Unit uh, head, and he left to go to write one of the official histories at the War Memorial, and that, so they've been without boss for, what, 18 months? 14 months. But uh, they've just announced that Lieutenant Colonel Tim Jalal, full colonel now, gee, I knew when he was just a lieutenant... Um, he's uh, Colonel Tim Jalal has got the gig to be the Army historian and that's a terrific thing for the Army history unit it's a terrific thing because and this is where I very cleverly moved to introducing Roger because the Army history unit is one of the most important institutions in documenting, recording and disseminating the history of the Australian Army and the reason it's that important is that over the last how many years? 20, over the last roughly 20 years Roger Lee has been in charge of that unit a very small unit of the Army uh, what, 20 people? You know, in Canberra. Oh, goodness. Oh, gee. Right. A very small unit of the army, but one which has got the biggest reach because it's got 17 museums, 19 museums in five states? No, no, no. The, um, so you can see that the army history unit's got a bit of a reach, but also, and this is the most important thing for people like us, the army history unit uh, uh, publishes, both gives people money to do research and and in military history, that's very rare in this country. And it also publishes the results of that research in several very good series, campaign series and, and uh, as an association with various publishers and the Army History Series with Cambridge University Press, which I have the, the pleasure and the honour to edit. 
So the Army History Unit is a really important institution for fostering and supporting and disseminating an understanding of the Australian Army's history. And you can, you'll be able to see why it's got that authority when, Roger, when I finally clear off and Roger talks to you. Uh, Roger has been there for a long time. He knows the Australian Army's history in great depth and he especially knows the Western Front in great depth because he did a PhD at my own institution, the University of New South Wales, Canberra, under the supervision of the late Geoffrey Gray uh, on command on the Western Front. So Roger is, is a, a true expert in this area, and he'll give you the benefit of his views on the Battle of the Menin Road presently. I think that's all I have to say. Oh, normally someone from the National Library welcomes you, and they tell you that the toilets are outstairs, uh, outside. They tell you that they're delighted to be associated with, with the estaminet, they, they welcome you to country, of course, and generally that, that's all they do. So I'll do what, I've done what they've done. I do what I do. I'll get out of the way. And here's Roger. Good old Roger. One of the advantages of sitting in the audience before this happens is you see the obvious mistake on the slide. Uh, if you haven't, I'll tell you. Uh, it's a combination. I was actually putting up the date for the talk and somehow or other it morphed into the day of the talk and the date and the year of the battle. So delete 11, insert 20, or delete 1917 and put 2017, whichever you prefer. Okay. Thanks, Peter. Uh, Peter's threatened me with all sorts of things if I don't stick to 30 minutes. And those of you who know me know that if I don't follow a script, I'll ramble. So please excuse me if I, if I read my script rather than stand here and talk to slides. For the first time in Australia's military history, 100 years ago next Wednesday week, and as our discussion says on the 20th of September, two Australian divisions went into action for the first time side by side. The attack started at, 05, uh, at uh, 40 minutes past five in the morning and all the objectives were captured within five hours. By Western Front standards, even the casualties were at an acceptably low rate. Menon Road was a major achievement and a rare example of a plan and its execution coinciding. In, de in dealing with heavily entrenched German defenders, many protected inside a complex and dense system of interlocking concrete pillboxes, uh, a new German defensive strategy which was uh, designed specifically to deal with the sort of attack that was launched at Menon Road, uh, with the appalling terrain, that's a good example, that's just near Vestuk in uh, just short of the, um, the objective, sorry, just past the objective of the northern attacking Australian division. Uh, the Australian infantry performed exceptionally well, demonstrating a dramatically improved uh, level of tactical skill over most of its experiences in, uh, performances in 1916. Right, that's a map showing basically the, the area of the Battle of Menon Road. But first let me put the battle into its strategic and operational context. The first point in this is that this, is, this campaign was not a new strategic idea. Planning for an attack in the Ypres salient had been going on in BEF headquarters since 1915. After all, liberation, the liberation of Belgium was, uh, liberating Belgium was arguably the main reason for Britain's entry into the war in the first place. And uh, the, um, the strategic analysts and planners found that it was far more attractive, uh, far more easier to sell a major operation in Belgium to the British government and people than it was to sell an operation in France. The attractiveness of an attack in Belgium, in addition to this political value, 
uh, was that the Germans were at more of an operational disadvantage there than at anywhere else on the Western Front. Uh, their foothold in Belgium was uh, shallow. The distance between the British front line, and if I can make this work, there's the British front line. They're the, obje they're the objectives, actually, of the Passchendaele campaign. And the German and the Dutch border, which is there, uh, is only about 50 miles. This was insufficient to enable the Germans to trade territory for casualties or for trading of territory for long-term strategic advantage, such as they did early in 1917 in the withdrawal to the Hindenburg Line. They had very limited and very exposed lines of communications to support their troops in this sector. Indeed, they only had two railway lines into the area. And uh, with British control of the sea, the German right flank was left exposed to an amphibious attack. For these reasons, serious planning for an attack in the salient in April or May of 1916 was underway when the Germans attacked at Verdun in 1916. Had it not been for the ca this cataclysmic struggle, which effectively derailed all the Allied strategic planning of the late 1915, it is possible that the British would have attacked at Ypres and not on the Somme. Ypres had not lost its political and strategic appeal then in 1917. Turning to the battle, Menin Road was the third of eight major battles of the Passchendaele campaign. Passchendaele ranks perhaps just behind the Somme for the volume of emotion, misunderstanding and rancour that it generates among historians and non-historians alike. I don't obviously have the time to go through the strategic arguments for the campaign, but in summary it was launched for four basic reasons. Um, the first one had to do with the fact that the German submarine campaign in, in mid-1917 was threatening to starve Britain out of the war, and the German submarine, major submarine bases were those two. There's another one up here, and then Bruges itself, surprisingly, because of its canal connections were important small submarine bases. The second point was to keep German attention away from the French army, which was in a very fragile state after the Nouvelle Offensive in April 1917. Uh, my good friend Elizabeth Greenhalge says that we can, we can make too much of this, that it wasn't as important as people like me give it credit for. I look forward to her research with some interest. Uh, the third point was to try and win the war before the defeat of Russia by Germany occurred, and that was becoming quite apparent to strategic planners that that defeat was going to happen. And, of course, the fourth point was to try and win the war before the Americans arrived to claim all the credit for the eventual victory. That's perhaps a little harsh, but if you look at the documents out of uh, Allied headquarters, there's a grain of truth in it. Haig's initial plan was for an attack to be conducted by the British Fifth Army under General Sir Hubert Gough. Hang on. What am I doing? Oh, sorry, I'm pressing the backwards button. Uh, he's the short chap... Uh, looking towards the camera. Uh, Goff had a reputation as something of a thruster and Haig, the Commander-in-Chief, wanted the attack prosecuted with considerable vigour and not caution. The plan was innovative and comprehensive. There was even an amphibious landing called Operation Hush planned to land a British division behind the German lines just near Middlekirk. Unfortunately, there were also some serious errors in the plan, the main flaw being an overly optimistic assumption about the ease with which the dominating high ground in the area of operations, the Gellervelt Plateau, just to the uh, east of Ypres, could be cleared of the enemy. Goff launched his first attack, the Battle of Pilkham Ridge, and just this is a scan from the official history, the British official history, so I apologise. You've got to take this map and sort of stick it on top of there to get the full north-south doesn't fit onto an A4 page. Um, so that red line there coincides with that red line there. If you can do that. And that'll be the same policy for all these maps. 
At 0350 on 31 July, the Battle of Pilgrim Ridge kicked off. It made good progress, but the Gellervelt Plateau on its southern flank, uh, that's this area of high ground, if you can see the ridge lines, it runs a bit like that. Uh, where did I get to? The Gellervelt on its southern flank proved impossible to capture. Having an exposed right flank then severely limited the 5th Army's ability to keep advancing, and nor did the miserable weather help. The attack ground to a halt, with some progress made, but nothing like the depth of penetration planned in the timetable. A series of smaller efforts were then made to try and capture the Gellervelt, while the main attack further north paused and consolidated the ground that it had taken. Haig, coming under considerable uh, political, allied military and timing pressures, put a lot of pressure on Haig in turn to recommence the main attack as soon as possible, even if the Gellervelt remained in enemy hands. Consequently, a second major attack, the Battle of Langemark, was launched on the 16th of August. It also made progress, but again, the exposed southern flank held it back. With this, Haig rather lost patience with Gough, and in late August, he brought in the British Second Army under General Sir Herbert Plumer, He's the funny little chap with the walrus moustache on the right-hand side of that picture. Uh, what? Oh, on, oh, yeah, okay, on this side. <laughs> um, on the southern flank of the 5th Army, which then in turn shifted north to accommodate the new forces, and this army was brought in specifically to take the Gellervelt and free up 5th Army to press on with the main attack. Both armies were to launch their next attack, which, as it happens is the Menin Road battle, simultaneously. Haig believed that if the 2nd Army could deal with the troublesome plateau, 5th Army advance could indeed catch up to its timetable. That's Menin Road again, showing, again, same prince, different map of it, showing you the objective lines. For his part in the attack, Plumer proposed a four-stage, step-by-step attack with strictly limited depths of advance. He limited the Menin Road depth of advance to 1,500 metres, well, actually 1,500 yards. This was the depth he sets, he sets for each of the attacks. Don't forget, he's going to not only do the men and road attack, Polygon Wood, Brood Cinder, and then the, the two Passchendaele battles were all part of Plumer's plan just to clear the southern flank. There was a six-day pause between each of these battles. It was to be a six-day pause. During the pause, while the infantry consolidated the capture, consolidated the capture position, ready to repel German counterattacks, the artillery was then to be moved forward to provide, give it the additional range necessary to support the next phase of the attack. Contrary to widespread, widespread British and French thinking on offensive tactics, each front would be on a comparatively narrow frontage. For instance, the frontage for Plumer's men and road attack was essentially the same width as that attacked on the 31st of July by two corps, and whereas two corps had attacked with two divisions, Second Army would attack with four, ensuring twice as many men in, in the battle and providing sufficient combat mass to both make the advance and to secure it from counterattack. Where am I? Yep. Menin Road is where the Australians, Plumer and Second Army come together. Plumer, knowing the challenge of the Gellervelt, had demanded significant reinforcement of his Second Army, of his Second Army, because after his victory at Messines in June, it had been plundered to reinforce the British Fifth Army for their main attack. The Australian infantry of uh, 1st Anzac Corps were resting and refitting in BEF Reserve. Plumer requested them as a replacement for his worn-out 2 Corps, which had been doing battles, and I'll talk about that in a minute. 
Second Anzac Corps, which contained the other Australian division, was already in Second Army. So for the first time, uh, all the uh, Australian divisions were in the same army on the Western Front. Menin Road was the first battle of the Second Army's involvement in the Passchendaele operation, although it had been conducting operations in support of Fifth Army, Fifth Army's attempt to capture the Gelabout, because uh, Second Army was on Fifth Army's lower, left flank, uh, right flank on the southern side. It was trying to take out all the supporting German elements that were you know, stopping Fifth Army advance along the, the, the plateau. Despite Australian popular beliefs to the contrary, Menin Road was not just an Australian battle. The battle called Menin Road, which as you can see from the map, extends well beyond Menin Road and the Gellivelt Plateau, involves three corps from Fifth Army, as well as the other Second Division formations, 10th and 9th Corps. In all, the Battle of Menin Road, 11 infantry divisions advance at dawn on the 20th of September, of which only two are Australian. The key point about Plumer's plan for the Menin Road attack was that every aspect of it was subordinate to the artillery plan. And I only, I use that phrase just as an excuse to put this up because I love it. Big guns, they're wonderful. As, uh, as well as uh, infantry reinforcements, Second Army's artillery assets were also greatly increased. While time will prevent me from tracing in detail each phase and element in the infantry attack, I'll give you a brief summary in a minute, I, don't wish, I do wish to spend some time on what I consider is the single dominating factor which enabled the Australian infantry to succeed. And this was the well-planned and well-executed artillery support program. To ensure the guns could deliver, Plumer stripped the artillery from every division in his army not engaged in the attack as well as demanding significant reinforcements from all the other unengaged British armies. A large number of artillery units were transferred, for example, from the British 4th Army, which included three independent Australian Army brigades of field artillery and the 22nd and 54th Heavy Artillery Groups. Heavy Artillery Group is an interesting concept. This is varying from my theme for here, but I've got four slides that will show you the composition of the Heavy Artillery Groups. And when you consider it, the Australian Army at the moment has got one regiment of medium artillery, and that's it. You have a look at this, you understand there is just no comparison with the artillery that was on the, on the, the battlefront in 1970 where the Australians are fighting and what Australian soldiers could get in artillery support now. There's four of these slides, I'll roll through them as I keep talking. These slides illustrate the size and combat power of the heavy artillery groups supporting the two Australian divisions and these are just to support the two Australian divisions. Every other division or corps gets similar scales of support. That's an enormous number of guns. Additional field artillery brigades came from Army Reserve. All of this meant that for one ANZAC Corps alone, it had nine field artillery brigades, that's 324 18-pounder field guns, and 108 uh, 4.5-inch howitzers in direct support. In addition, other field batteries, plus the medium and heavy guns shown on these slides, conducted the broader bombardment and were then used to augment the barrage. To support all this, Plumer assembles over 3.2 million shells of all calibres to support this attack. Compare that with the Somme, where they had about 1.3 and fired in a seven-day barrage. It's orders of magnitude bigger. Uh, the fire plan to support, in support of the Australian attack at Minerode was complex and in two phases. The first phase was a sporadic barrage of variable weight in the five days that preceded the attack. Uh, while firing a heavy barrage to maximise the effect is desirable, such a tactic also warns the enemy that an infantry assault is imminent. Consequently, while the preliminary bombardment was very heavy and intended to locate and destroy German army uh, artillery and as many German fixed defences, pillboxes, 
barbed wire entanglements and trench strong points as possible, it was done in a manner that, quote, appeared routine. Now, I don't quite know how over a thousand barrels of six inch or larger firing thousands of shells would appear to the recipient as being routine, but that's what the artillery orders demanded of it. More emphasis, however, was placed in the orders on being accurate than on either the rate or weight of fire for the first time in any of the uh, command orders that I've read for this battle, for this war. Right, that map which I put up prematurely is uh, the map of the objective lines, and they are very uh, innovatively called the red, blue and green lines. The red line is the first objective, the blue line is the second objective, and the green line is the third objective, as will become apparent as I proceed. The fire support phase for the attack itself was based on an innovative new approach to the barrage. Given the nature of the enemy's deep and interlocking defences, there was little purpose in having the traditional single, being called it a thin, I think that's a bit unkind, line of shells rolling forward just in front of the advancing infantry. For this attack, the barrage was certainly not a single thin line of shells. It was a storm of shells, and this is Bean's own words, a thousand yards deep, comprising five separate lines, four separated by 200 yards, with, while the interval between lines four and five was only 100 yards. The closest line to the, the, uh, support, the attacking infantry, fired by the 18-pounder field guns, was a mere 150 yards in front of the forward infantry. You've got to have confidence in your gunners when you do that. The second line, fired by the 18-pounders and the 4.5-inch howitzers, were fired by those, and the next three were combinations of machine guns, 6-inch, 8-inch and 9.2-inch howitzers. The heavier guns were kept for counter-battery, mainly counter-battery work. The other interesting thing is that machine guns are now fully integrated into the artillery fire plan in a way that they were not in 1916. So you've got all the massed Vickers machine guns firing on uh, fixed ranges well outside. They're not firing on visible lines, they're firing indirectly, and they are a fully integrated pattern. And in fact, the reaction in the, the German war diaries that we've seen to the effects of the machine gun barrages in, in some ways worse than their reaction, uh, they had a, a worse reaction to it than they did to 18-pounders. Uh, which they didn't uh, find all that fearsome by the end. The barrage would not commence until the assault troops had begun to form up in no man's land, trying to achieve a small element of tactical surprise. At zero hour, at zero hour, it rested in front of the start line for three minutes before it began to roll forward at a specified rate. Initially, this was 100 yards in four minutes. So in four minutes, the barrage moves forward just 100 yards for the first 200 yards. It then slows to 100 yards every six minutes. Although the Australian infantry would later complain that the rate of advance was too slow, it was based on the bitter experience of the Somme, where being separated from the barrage saw entire battalions destroyed. The barrage would then pause for an hour after it had passed the first objective, the red line, to enable the infantry that took the red line to consolidate. It would then roll forward again at the even slower rate of 100 yards in eight minutes to the second objective, the blue line, and then beyond it. And after another two-hour-long pause this time, it would then roll forward 100 yards in eight minutes to the final objective, the green line. The whole point about this whole thing is that the barrage is designed to protect the infantry while they get to their objective, while they consolidate it, while they bring up the next group of troops to, advance, to do the next part of the advance. All this was to be done without interference from the enemy, and that's what the barrage was designed to do. At 5.40am, the barrage began, and the infantry assigned the capture of the first objective, the red line, left their taped 
uh, following, forming up areas and began the advance comparatively untroubled by enemy resistance. Troops assigned to capture the second and third objectives were required to wait forward of their French front line trenches but well behind the first wave until the red line was captured and consolidated. The aim was to create a gap between the attacking waves of infantry and the predictable areas of forming up like their own front line trenches to protect them from German um, artillery. But in the heat of the moment, many of the second and third waves pressed closely behind the leading attackers and basically followed them into the first objective. Given the long pauses by the British artillery on the objectives and the slow rate of the rolling advance, the same eagerness caused bunching up and some, even some intermingling of units, which, as anticipated, did add to the casualties when the German artillery got lucky and hit them. Fortunately, the German artillery spotters were slow to recognise the depth and rate of the, of the advance and initially focused their fire on the old British front line and their predicted uh, forming up areas. The first serious shelling of the newly captured positions doesn't in fact begin until 4 o'clock in the afternoon, 13 hours after the attack began. The first infantry wave also pressed much closer behind their friendly uh, artillery barrage than planned, uh, incurring casualties from friendly fire as a result. However, the trade-off was that by being so close, in many cases they were able to engage the German defenders even as they were emerging from their shelters and long before they could set up their machine guns. I don't want to give the impression that due to the scale of British artillery support, the infantry had an easy time of it, far from it. In many instances, there was localised but fierce fighting at points where the barrage had either missed individual pillboxes or where enough German defenders scattered amongst the shell holes had survived to engage the advance. In some areas, such as Glencorse Wood, uh, which is down there, and the broken scrub around the Hunnabick Stream, which is up north on the north side of the plateau. Uh, there was some pretty fierce fighting. Um, where did I get to? Oh, yes. The survival of some of the pillbox and some examples of incredible bravery by the German defenders uh, took a heavy toll of the attackers. The fighting around Glencourse Wood saw two Victoria Crosses awarded for individual acts of bravery, one to 2nd Lieutenant Fred Burks of the 6th Battalion and Private Roy Inwood of the 10th Battalion. There were also seven VCs, in case people forget, awarded to British soldiers for bravery on the same day. It was no cakewalk for the infantry. That said, for the most part, the infantry were able to advance according to the plan, keeping to the timetable and securing all their objectives. Only on the southern flank of the attack, at a place called Tower Hamlets, which is... Uh, I can't see it on the map, it's around about there, uh, did the attack fail uh, to take all its... It took some of its objectives, not all of it, while in the north, Fifth Army's, most of Fifth Army's advances occurred except for just past Ferenzenberg, where they had to try and capture a, an area on the reverse slope and they were exposed to German artillery spotting. But overall, these were the only two main areas of where the objectives were not taken on the day. The two Australian uh, divisions attacked in a conventional order with two brigades conducting an attack and the third in reserve. That's the brigade. What is different, though, is the use of the battalions. Up until then, the practice was to allocate most of the combat effort to taking the first objective, in this case the red line. These same troops then had to consolidate and continue the attack to the next and to successive objectives. This time, Plumer instructs that each battalion be given one objective, and when it's captured, that battalion was to remain to consolidate it and to garrison it. The battalion following directly behind it was then to move through this reinforced and protected first position and follow the barrage on to the next objective. You will have noticed, that's those of you who are still awake, 
the, the Green Line had two battalions in, in nearly all of them, except this one. Oop, where did I go? Oop, no, no, back one. Pressing the wrong button. This one doesn't, but the others have got two battalions assigned. That's because the northern flank of the objective zone, uh, sorry, the, the northern flank goes further north. And so basically it's a much wider final objective, so they have to put more troops into it. Uh. In five hours, the Australians had taken all their objectives and consolidated their positions. The much-anticipated and feared German counterattacks did appear, but neither in the strengths nor in the skills nor in the frequencies that were expected. The artillery again played a major part in this by breaking up German counter-attack formations as soon as they were identified. And this is where a lot of elements... I haven't got time to talk about the complexity of this battle, but there are a lot of new elements in it. Contact aeroplanes. They had aeroplanes dedicated to spotting the build-up of German counter-attack divisions, and these were directly targeted. There's a lot in this sort of thing, and this is what makes this a success. Um, the, by breaking up these German, large German counter-attack formations, and in some cases even preventing... Uh, the dedicated and highly trained German counterattack divisions from even getting to the battlefield because they interdicted their lines of approach. I'd be happy to talk more in question time about that. But I'd like to finish up, and Peter will be happy to hear me say that, by briefly addressing two points. Firstly, Passchendaele is synonymous with mud. I'll put that up now because it's a bit to read. And it's certainly true that mud was the dominant factor in the outcome of the overall campaign. But there's a lot of emotion about mud, all this rubbish that you hear about the British High Command going up and bursting into tears when they see the conditions under which their troops are fighting. That's absolute bollocks. Uh, if you read the, 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 every, every headquarters war diaries, they're all talking about the appalling conditions. They know it intimately. They had more aerial photographs per square inch of Belgium than the Belgian government ever had. They knew the conditions in detail. They just didn't have a lot of choice. At Menon Road, mud was much less of an issue. The excessive rain of early August and early October held off sufficiently in September for the ground to dry out enough to both reduce the mud as a tactical consideration for the infantry and indeed, in some cases, turn into dust. Some of the artillery observers in their war diaries complained that dust was obscuring their ability to direct fire. If you take the mud out of the equation, all of a sudden, the battle results in this campaign change. For what it's worth, I believe that the outcome of the battle at Menon Road and indeed the subsequent battle at Polygon Wood should be cause for those critics of Haig and his campaign plan to at least reconsider their position. Given that the conditions at Menon Road represented what was the normal weather pattern for that part of Belgium, the then success in that battle suggests to me at least that Haig's overall plan was not fatally flawed, as is implied by many critics, and may indeed even have had the potential for some success, had the weather been normal, which of course it wasn't, as you can see from that. Haig gets a lot of criticism for his plan. However, I believe the only really justifiable criticism that can be levelled at him is that he was a rubbish weather forecaster. <laughs> uh, my second point, and again, it's just me being in love with big guns, my second point is a bit more philosophical, and this is the one I'd like to finish on. Menon Road, in isolation from the Passchendaele campaign as whole, is widely viewed as a success. Indeed, it's been used to add to Plumer's reputation as probably the best British general of the war. Now, I agree with that, but I can only assume, I can only assume that this is solely because all the objectives were taken 
and done so to the planned timetable. Perhaps a bit like Monash at Hamill in 1918. However, I find this assessment rather puzzling, given that the two Australian divisions alone suffered 5,013 casualties, including over 1,000 killed, and that while the German front line was captured, it was not broken. How the popular view decides that Fromelles, for example, is a disaster, but Menon Road is a success, is thus something of a mystery, and leads me to ask this question, and I'll put it to you, in this war, what constitutes success and what constitutes failure? The Battle of Menon Road clearly demonstrated that Plumer's bite-and-hold tactic for a cautious, limited attack could see, but does this in itself constitute success? Given it took 20 days of pre-positioning infantry, artillery, ammunition and all the rest of the material needed before it could be launched and given it only captured 1,500 yards of ground, it does not look to me like a strategic success. Given that, the, given that rate of progress, I'm pretty confident in suggesting that this tactic was no recipe on its own for winning the war. While the Battle of Amiens in August the following year, which is the start of Germany's defeat, superficially looks much like the Menon Road model in the way it's, it's put together and planned, it was set in an entirely different context. Significant changes had occurred in numerous other factors that affected the battlefield, such as technological developments, the dramatically improving morale of the French army, the presence, finally, of a large number of Americans, and the plunging morale and material situation of the enemy. I would argue that it was all these factors, in combination with the careful planning that underpinned the Men and Road model, that was the war-winning formula, not a single tactical concept like the bite and hold of Men and Road itself. Men and Road was unquestionably a successful battle, but it was no template for winning the war. Thank you for your attention. Well, we promised you deep knowledge and that's what you got, but delivered in a very economical time frame, so the best of both worlds. Um, we've got lots of time for questions and discussion. Now, let me be, be clear here. Um, the Estaminet, the, the, uh, the Canberra Great War Study Group, has a small group of, of people who can claim to be experts, but don't let them intimidate you, uh, especially if you've got a connection to this battle and something's been niggling out for years and you don't know the answer. Now's the time to ask the question. Now, I'm afraid that the uh, National Library seem to have left us to our own devices. They often have microphones. We don't seem to have a microphone today. So if you want to ask a question, please wave, and when, when you get picked, speak up, and Roger will no doubt respond expertly. So who's that? There's a bearded gentleman in the middle. Well, for, I think it's a, it was a personnel problem, a personal problem. They all tried. If, if, if you look at all the photographs of every officer in the British Army in World War One, they all had moustaches. It was very trendy. It wasn't trendy. It was, it was, it was de rigueur, it was, was it? De rigueur. Oh, okay. Yes, yeah, so a requirement. Requirement. That's true. Yes. Um, the clean shavenness comes in a into the military effect when we start wearing gas masks, because gas masks stop an airtight seal being formed between the mask and the skin. So that's, uh, as I understand it, that's the reasons that came into the into military requirements for clean-shavenness for certain categories of people. Uh, before then, I mean, yes, yeah. but you're quite right. Um, he is a figure of, he's a caricature, 
and uh, when you try and give this lecture to teenagers, the, you pop up a picture of Plumer and they, they die laughing on the floor. It's a... At the back, um, Catherine. Catherine, yeah. Um, I'm just wondering about the red line, the green line, and yes. the blue line. <laughs> Leave that woman alone, Andrew. Um, every battle has to have a, an objective set. You, you just don't keep advancing uh, unless you achieve a breakthrough where there's no enemy resistance and away you go. But in the planning stage, you can't assume that. So every battle, if you look at every battle in the First World War, they had set lines of objectives. Sometimes it was one. Uh, sometimes, like Haig at the Somme, in the first uh, day one of the Somme, he had rather uh, ambitious... Well, with hindsight, we know they were ambitious at the time, didn't they? Uh, lines of objective. How they were scribed described? Yes, they were usually a coloured line on a map. Uh, again, people don't understand, unless you, like me, a uh, terrible, terrible condition to admit to, but I've spent more of my life in the dusty maps of World War I war diaries than you care to imagine, and it was the issuing of maps with coloured lines on them that, that actually set in stone how we describe things. And if you look at the orders, the objective lines are also specified by map references, but they go for five, six, seven lines because they're very complex. So it's much simpler when you're trying to get your order out quickly to a battalion or to, to a company to draw on a map. And if they're in the front line, and for this battle, both divisions sent reconnaissance groups forward before the battle, so they knew where they were going to be fighting. They had a very good idea of the layout of the land. Uh, they could then equate the line on a map with what they, where they had to go and what they had to do. So, but the colours, I think, probably the colour of the Chinagraph pencils are available in, uh, in Plumer's headquarters. I really don't know. No, no, not always. But red was popular. I, I, yeah, I, perhaps they had a lot of red pens, yeah, given that they also used to mark up their lowest headquarters orders. So, you know, I don't know. If you, dredging back to the maps that I've looked at, there is nearly always a red line objective. But quite often, if there's only one objective, that would be it. So, but I don't think there's nothing, there's nothing sacred, as far as I can tell, about the colouring of the, the objective lines. It was just a way of delineating the depth of it. The reason you have to do it is... And it comes back to the artillery. The artillery need to know where the infantry are going to stop because if you're going to drop thousands of rounds of 18-pounder uh, shells 150 yards in front, you don't want to be 50 yards out because otherwise it can get very awkward. So that's the whole problem. People complain, the, uh, the people who don't really understand the First World War battles don't understand why everything is so rigid because with the appalling communication networks that they had available, they only had basically telephones. In this battle, I couldn't have time to say it, but in this battle there's a very innovative use of wireless. They've got a tank uh, stuck... Oh, I have to put my map back. They've got a, uh, a tank parked right there so it can be accessed by both divisions, parties, and it's a wireless tank so it can get communications back because the moment you go outside the plan, how do you tell all those thousands of gunners? How do you tell those aircraft... How do you tell the engineers who are looking for you? How do you tell the medical people who are taking your wounded away where you are? You've got to have communications. In this war, the main form of communication was the infantry runner, and the infantry runners were the highest casualty rating of any employment category in the British Army. They suffered casualties about three or four times the normal infantryman's rate. Because, of course, they're, they're moving, 
they have to get out of broken trenches and get a run along the top. They're an obvious target. And everybody knows what they're doing. So, yes. Could you talk more about um, the air support? Oh, the air support. One of my favourite topics. There's, there are whole books about it. Um, one of the reasons that this battle works so well is, um, again, Plumer understands that the days of a battle being dominated by infantry as the queen of the battlefield and artillery as the supporting arm is over. It's a, it's a combined effect by all sorts of um, uh, areas. And aviation provide the one thing that at this stage the commander doesn't have, which is visibility of his battlefield. So they have all different sorts of aircraft over the, over the front field. You've got artillery spotters controlling... The, the artillery spotters worked with either specific artillery batteries or some of them were almost like tripwires who would say there's a big bunch of Germans forming up. The favourite point was back here, back behind the line down here, there's a town called Moosleder. And at Moosleder is where most of the German counter-attack divisions were kept in shell-proof bunkers. So they had a couple of German, uh, they had a couple of British observation aircraft sitting on the obvious lines of approach from Moosleder to the front. And the moment they saw more than about ten guys moving, they called in a whacking great artillery stonk on it. And that's, that was their purpose. So you had that kind of specialist aircraft. British commanders never knew how far their troops were. They were told they were on the objective line, but what if their navigation was bad? So another group of aircraft was called contact aircraft. And these were very brave men who would fly at low level up and down the trench line, sounding a klaxon horn saying, look at me. And the infantry would then wave a flag, as Andrew and I found in a thing recently. What was it called? A something fan? A Watson fan. A Watson fan, which is a big sheet of, of, of material coloured differently. And you wave it around until the aircraft sees it, and he says, aha, that's where our infantry are. So he can then drop a signal back at headquarters saying, yes, they're on this map reference. So the artillery can then bring fire in much closer. So you've got dedicated specialist aircraft like that. Plus you've got the long range. We had fighters overhead to try and keep the German aircraft, uh, observation aircraft away because the Germans are trying to do the same thing in reverse. So, yeah, there's a whole separate book in the air war above the Passchendaele campaign. Uh, and it's fascinating. Mr Gawling. Uh, ah. This is a sort of a state-of-the-art attack at this stage for limited objectives yep. with each bound effectively being field artillery range. So you say this is a standard attack at this stage to achieve a terrain objective that makes sense in the wider campaign. Would your sort of wider point be that at Amiens the difference is effectively the Germans are not the same? That they're being run down, attrited, shot their bolt in the, you know, the, the major wooden door offensive and that gives the scope Ironically, I agree with you, but ironically, to the British at the time, the situation was reversed. Uh, Haig's head of intelligence had told him that after the Somme, after Verdun, uh, and some of the stuff that was going on the Eastern Front, the German army in 1917, uh, and after the Nivelle Offensive, was on its last legs. And now, Haig never forgot what happened to him in 1914. He was commanding the British in Ypres in 1914 as a divisional commander. Divisional commander? Yeah, still a divisional commander. Core commander he was, that's right. And the Germans had launched this massive attack and they were on the point of breaking through. They launched two attacks in which Haig's troops had held on by the skin of their teeth. On the third attack, Haig wheels out his cooks, his clerks, his bottle washers, everything, and their men in the fire pit, and they stopped the Germans. Haig knew that the Germans were within a whisker of breaking through and the, the whole story of the war might have been different. So when the situation's reversed at Passchendaele, and the German morale in this battle initially collapses, one of the reasons the infantry advanced so well at Menon Road is the barrage is so uh, demoralising that the Germans, a lot of them, surrender in droves. 
a couple of them then proceeded to shoot the Australian soldier coming to take, take them prisoner and found out that's not a good idea because they weren't allowed to surrender after that. But uh, on the whole, there was mass... I mean, at one stage, one Australian uh, in 10th Battalion, I forget his name, um, captures a whole bunker with about 40 or 50 Germans in it. So their morale's at rock bottom. So Haig thinks it. That's one of the reasons he keeps pushing. He remembers what happened to him at Ypres. He's getting all the intelligence that's saying, keep going, they're about to crack. He thinks he can actually achieve his strategic aim here. Of course, he can't. Hmm? No, actually, well, initially he thought he was there at uh, the middle of September after Menon Road because there was, there was euphoria is perhaps a bit of an overstatement. It was a, a great degree of um, self-congratulation going on in the various headquarters after Menon Road because it was such a resounding success in terms of it stuck to the plan. It was one of the few that had actually worked. It was amazing. Well, so, I, think, I think one of the differences, though, in army arms is the German defence. Oh, yeah. No, I'll the come German, back. Yeah. It's quite right. Uh, this, where I was going to, though, this is all happening now. When you turn your around, attention around to Amiens, by this stage, Haig's learned to be very cautious. But the German defences at Amiens were rubbish. They'd all been hauled off down to deal with the major French attacks down at Soissons. So there was no reserves available. They were basically garrison divisions holding the trenches at, uh, at Amiens. And, and to be honest, too, um, the Australian Corps in particular, but others have been doing it, the Australian Corps in particular have been annoying the Germans by going out every night and capturing their outpost line. So, you know, the Germans have put another company out on outpost duty and Australians go out that night and capture the lot. So they come out in the morning, where's our outpost line? It's gone, oh, we better put some more in. So the German commanders get so jack of this that they've packed the front line with, with uh, battalions. So, of course, when the 8th of August barrage descends on them, instead of killing one or two, they wipe out battalions. So in that sense, you know, there's a lot of things that change in this battle that you, 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 can't, you can't compare the two. But fundamentally, you're right. In, in August... The 8th of August 1918, the German army was not the German army of September 1917. Far from anything else, the flu epidemic was knocking them. Mm. About a third of the German army was either sick or... Uh, yeah. Sorry. Lee Crutchley. It's old age, mate. It's old age. cavalry still in the play? I need Steve Badzi here or Jean. Um, there was a unit of the Australian Light Horse used in Men and Road. It was a messenger service. Uh, the cavalry provided the one thing that the Allies lacked, uh, which was still at this stage, which was a means of exploiting success. Your biggest problem was uh, infantry walk at about four or five miles an hour. It's going to take you a long time to walk to Berlin. Uh, cavalry still, because tanks walked, oh, sorry, walked, moved at four miles an hour. Uh, Armoured cars were good. In August 1918, they did good things, but they stuck to roads. So cavalry is really your only mass alternative to exploit any success you have, or more importantly, to plug a break. So cavalry is there. But cavalry, A, horses don't take cover too easily. B, there's something of a prominent target. Uh, C, the terrain in this part of the world was appalling. I mean, I've, I, I saw an account where an entire team of 18, an 18-pounder team, six horses, the gun and the, and the caisson, slipped off the road into a huge shell hole and all six horses drowned in the mud vanished from sight. They managed to get the gunners off, but they couldn't rescue the horses. So in this battle, there's not a lot of use for horses. Uh, they would have been actually quite useful at Combray uh, when the tanks broke through, but of course this was the, techno, the technological leader saying, we don't need stupid horses, the, the tanks will do it, and they didn't. But yeah, uh, the cavalry remains... In, uh, people forget there were cavalry in World War II. 
You know, both the Germans and the Russians had huge cavalry corps on the Eastern Front. So cavalry hangs around for a long time. The last known cavalry charge was in Mozambique in the rebellion in the 1990s, as, as far as I can tell. Yes, Liz. Okay, thank you. Uh, Roger, you've made me feel a lot better about this battle. My grandfather was in the 28th Battalion, ah, and I good. see they were aiming for that green line, which yeah. looks a horrible way forward. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about what you call the innovative use of wireless? And, and what do you actually mean by that, and how is it connected okay. to tanks? Um, those of my friends who've heard me bang on about this in the past will know that I think the fundamental flaw in the whole of the First World War was communications. That I, I actually attribute most of the outcomes in battle to the poor communications. Uh, battle, generals in battle um, are there for one thing, which is to coordinate. They are to move people to points where it's threatening to, f to either fail or threatening to succeed. They are there to provide assets to an organisation, which is, uh, to a unit which is in a position to use that asset effectively. You can't do any of that at this scale. In the old days, the general sitting on his horse on a hill watching his army could send a, a messenger on a horse and do it. But you can't do it in this scale of war. For that, you need effective communications. And communications is the one area of technology which was not keeping up to all the others. Even medical technology was advancing faster than communications technology in this war. Wireless had been around. I mean, Marconi had sent his first message across the Atlantic, I think, before the war. But wireless sets were not the sort of thing you sling on your back and go for a bushwalk. Uh, they were humongously heavy. Most of them were either in trucks. Uh, it was the British who first mounted them in tanks with tracks so they could go there. And they tended to be behind the lines. The other problem about wireless is they required a big mast, as the tank crew actually found. And that big mast should have a big red flag on it saying, shoot me, shoot me. Because whenever you saw a radio mast, every German gun in, <coughs> within Kui would fire at it. And that's actually what happened to the wireless tank. It's knocked out. But the British are always recognising that if you're going to win on the battlefield, you've got to be able to... Uh, what's the German technique? You strike where the enemy is weakest. Um, and you don't know that until you get out there and probe it. So how do you get that information back to people who can then exploit it, you've got to send it either. Well, the standard method of communication was telephone. You know, the old-fashioned telephone with a long copper wire. I forget how many, I did see a stat that told me how many thousands of miles of copper wire were laid in this battlefield, on these battlefields in France, but they're still digging it up, miles and miles of it. Um, every telephone had to be laid in a redundant pattern, and there were different telephone nets. So you had a command net, the artillery had a net, the Air Force, I think, towards the end of the war has a net, Everybody has their own telephone line, so they must, you know, telephone lines are everywhere. Unless you bury them deeply, telephone wires are susceptible to damage by enemy shelling, but most of the damage I understand in these battles came when the advancing troops tore it up with their boots, just ripped it out. So you normally would bury your telephone wires at least six foot deep. Well, you can't do that once you've launched an assault. So between the start line and the green line, any telephones are going to be run along the top, and they were, and they had a whole bunch of dedicated signalers with the battalions and in SIG courts, well, they were engineers, running along, repairing the, the brakes. But they literally couldn't keep up with the damage being done to the wires. So the communication becomes a bit dodgy. So then you come back to what I said earlier. You've got two other forms of communication. One is runner, a runner. You, you know, the officer calls in blogs, here blogs, take this to brigade headquarters and gives him a message. He will normally then call in another one 10 minutes later and give him the same message and say, take that, because you've got to have redundancy, because the first guy's probably not going to make it. Then off they go. Or you can use some other techniques. Uh, they had lots of communication done with, was done by uh, coded rockets. So you'd launch a rocket that's red, green, blue, or red, green, white, or whatever. 
and you could have a certain number of actions that followed from that. The favourite one was that leading infantry would have what they call an SOS signal, which was I'm basically... What actually now? What? shut up, Alan. Yeah. Oh, OK. One more question. Oh, sorry. Basically, the SOS would bring down our to it. Communication, wireless, they, the British were trying anything, and wireless was where they were getting in front of the Germans technologically. Last question from the gentleman in the yes. nice sweater. Uh, artillery obviously was uh, very significant. Would you like to comment on the problems they had at the gun end, the gun division? Mm. Um, yeah, artillery was important. Artillery kills 56% of all the, all the soldiers killed in this war. So artillery was the dominant factor on the battlefield. Uh, everyone thinks that gunners had a very cushy life and they only had to worry about gunners' ear. Um, I read not long ago that the reason the Germans developed mustard gas was not actually for its use on infantry, but it was for its use on artillery. Because men who are working stripped down to shorts and boots are an ideal target for an area weapon like mustard gas. And the Germans used mustard gas in this battle for the first time in the war. And they use it on the artillery. And they uh, give the artillery a very bad time. It doesn't kill a lot of gunners, but it sure as hell incapacitates a lot of them. The other problem was the Ypres salient is very small. Now, you saw how many guns I was talking about. There were thousands of guns. You've also got all the logistics forces, you've got all the engineers, you've got the infantry and their base depots, all packed into this tiny little area. The Germans could hardly miss. You fire around at random into this area, you're going to hit something. And that's what they did. And because the gunners were one of the largest footprints there, a lot of gunners were killed by harassing fire, interdiction fire, uh, aerial bombing at night. Uh, the Germans bombed the zone quite regularly at night with uh, night bombers. So, yeah, it was not, it was not a, a cushy life being a gunner. Plus... Gunners have to dig in their gun positions. Given the risks they had, they had to dig several positions because you had to move. Otherwise, the Germans were triangulate where you were and hit you with counter-battery fire. So it, not only were you being gassed, shot at, and everything else, you were subject to hard physical labour. Being a gunner in this war was no cushy billet. My, my calling, I would have been in the pay call. <laughs> Everybody loved to see you, and they protect you. <laughs> well, you can see why we invited Roger to give this talk. He knows his stuff, and he tells you in detail. So can I ask you to thank Roger Lee for his excellent work. Hey. And Roger has one more duty to perform, a pleasant one, uh, the Lucky Door Prize. Now, we'll, we'll start with the, the magazine of the Western Front Association since we meet under its auspices. So, Roger, would you care to pull out a number? Get your tickets out. It's a gripping read, that is. It is, yeah. Apricot, U10. U10. Who's U10? U10. Ah, here we go. Well done. Okay. Um, it's here for you when you come to collect it. Yeah, don't worry. Well done. Thank you. Right, now, the next one. Uh, some of ah. you will remember uh, Graham Wilson, who died only last year, and who wrote a terrific book, Bully Beef and Balderdash, and this one's volume two. So he's taking aim at some of the myths of the AIF. He was a warrant officer, wasn't yes. he? Yes, he was a, a former warrant officer. Uh, intelligence corps, but he, he had a powerful line in, in myth-busting. So here we go for yep. Graham Wilson's... They're all apricots, so just... Yeah. I've got to say, this is a really good read, so if you don't win it, I still recommend you go and buy it, because it's actually a good read. Uh, 70. U70. U70. Oh, well done. OK. It, it's there when you come back. Congratulations. Right, now the next one. This is a very... Oh, now I better do mine, because it looks as otherwise it's going to a climax... We meet under the auspices of the National Library. This is my latest book, The Crying Years, Australia's Great War, which is published by the National Library, and the library have given us a copy. And I have to say, I, it took me a while to get it off them, because they said, will the person you give it to write a review of it? 
And I said, well, I can't promise that. But they said, oh, all right. Anyway, so the National Library have graciously given us a copy of The Crying Years, which deals with Australia's Great War. So, Roger, do the honours. This has got to be soppy social history stuff. Yeah, soft social history. On the other hand, I'll sign it for you if you want. Uh, 51. 51. Who's 51? Oh, well done. And you got a question too. There you go. Right, now the last one. This is the most appropriate book. Uh, the late Geoffrey Gray edited a terrific series of five volumes, The Oxford Centenary History of Australia and the Great War. Uh, and uh, of the five volumes, this is the one most relevant to tonight because Bob Stevenson, who is, often uh, comes to the Australian yeah, but he's, he's, he's actually on the battlefield this week. Is he? Okay, yeah. right. Which battlefields, though? He's, he's at... He's, uh, today he'll be at Zonabek. Oh, he's always on the Western Front. Mm. Oh, okay. So, there you go. But uh, Bob Stevenson's book is called The War with Germany, and it basically deals with the Australian involvement in the biggest struggle of the war, notably on the Western Front. So this is a book worth having. Although if you, if you win it, you've got to buy the other four volumes, of course. Yes. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, 44. 44. Who's got 44? Four. Well done. Okay. It's yours. Okay. Look, thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks, Roger. Okay. And so the unlucky people come along to next meeting because there'll be some more prizes. Um, I forgot to do something earlier on, and that is we normally circulate the attendance book so people can record their names. To be honest, we, we used to send out email addresses and uh, messages, and Aaron Pegram, our secretary, still does. Uh, but the, the email address is sort of becoming a bit out of date. And in any case, the National Library do our uh, promotions for us now, so we've gone a bit quiet on the emails. But if you do want to get messages from the Assamine, because Aaron does send out messages about the future meetings, then uh, come, and, come and sign the book, and that way you can be sure of getting a message for the next meeting. But the next meeting will be here on the 31st of October, when Jenny Horsfield will talk about Australians in the Middle East in the First World War. So thank you for coming, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you. Okay.